Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find the most recent episodes in iTunes and also using an RSS reader. And the links for all of that are at thejazzsession.com. So usually I try to go someplace in the apartment where I'm squatting to avoid the noise of the city and make it sound more like a studio. But today I decided just to embrace the sounds of the city, and so I'm standing on the the balcony uh, way up here on the 17th floor on West End Avenue of the place where I'm uh, squatting for the next few weeks and for the last couple of months. And then I'm moving to Brooklyn in a few weeks. Uh, the other day I posted on uh, on Facebook that in the last several years I've gone from a homeowner to a home renter to an apartment renter to an apartment squatter to now next a room renter. And then I just put, you know, uh, arrow sign to the next thing and question mark. And one of my friends posted under that, uh, box in the park, which I think she meant as a joke, <laughs> but you know, might be a bit prophetic. Which brings up, if I might, uh, the idea of you becoming a member of the jazz session. Uh, the jazz session exists solely due to my financial largesse, uh, which I never had any of, and now I have less than none of. So, in order for this show to continue, I need a uh, hundred members by the three hundredth show to make this thing financially viable. And that means I need, I don't know, 60-something more members in the next 30-something more shows. We're getting down to the wire here, kids. And if you don't want number 300 to be the, the swan song, the final show, the big hurrah, then I need you to become a member. It is very cool when people, you know, retweet the show on Twitter or post it on Facebook or send me nice comments and all that stuff. And I really do appreciate those things. I sincerely do. That means the world to me to hear what you think of the show or that you use some of your social capital to tell other people about the show. But it is absolutely the truth that I need you to use your actual capital to support the show uh, in order for me to keep it going. I'm not affiliated with anybody. I mean, the All About Jazz thing is nice, but it means no money for me whatsoever. And uh, I have no connection with a radio station or anything else. It's just me. Just me and my microphone and my recorder and my little brain. And you might think that's enough. But it turns out in the world it isn't enough. And so in order for this thing to, uh, to keep going, I really need your help. So please do go to thejazzsession.com and become a member. My guest today is a guy I interviewed before the Jazz Session existed. I used to briefly host a show on an Air America affiliate called the Jason Crane Show, and I swear to God I did not choose that name. The radio station made me use that name. Uh, I would never would have called a show, my own show, the Jason Crane Show. Uh, that's a little too, you know, narcissistic even for me. Uh, but anyway, I hosted this show on the radio, and then afterwards it was a podcast, and it kind of veered between politics and music. And I would one week have a political guest or just blather on, and the next week I would have a musical guest, usually a jazz musician. And so one of those times I had Chris Washburn on, and he was actually a perfect synthesis of both of those sides of that show because he uh, engages in the political through his music, and he's a musician. So I've liked him ever since then and his uh, band, the Sayotos Band, and I was in uh, shortly after I moved to New York. I went with a friend to see uh, Chris up at the uh, Museo del Barrio and decided, oh, it's time to have him on the actual jazz session. Actually, I kind of thought I already had had him on the actual jazz session, and it was only when I went back to find that episode that I realized it didn't exist. So uh, to rectify that, that four-year oversight on my part, I went up to Colombia where uh, Chris teaches, and we spent some time chatting and uh, really enjoyed it. He's just a, he's a really nice guy. And I'm uh, shortly here after I, he's kind of in a stack of things I'm, I'm reading, going to delve into his book uh, about the salsa scene uh, in New York in the time when he was really coming up in it. So anyway, all of that said, uh, before we hear some music, let me just thank the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and please do go and buy all their records. Thank you very much. And also Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and he tweets at twitter.com slash Rabel. And now the title track from the Chris Washburn and Sayotos Band album, Fields of Moons. Thank you. 
My guest is Chris, or if you prefer, Christopher Washburn. He's the. Uh, I'm reading this right off the back of a book he just handed me because that's the kind of helpful guest he is. He's an associate professor of ethnomusicology at Columbia, where we are right now, and the founder and director of the school's Louis Armstrong Jazz Performance Program. But beyond all of that, he's a hell of a musician, and I'm really happy to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, we were talking about this just briefly, or mostly I was talking about it, that uh, years ago, when I had a, a different show that was kind of the outgrowth of my my political talk show, I, I had you on talking about politics and music and uh, I was stunned to learn that I'd never had you on the jazz session, so we're rectifying a, a long oversight at this point. Fantastic. So I saw you a few weeks ago at uh, El Museo del Barrio, and I was really struck. I, I brought somebody with me who had never seen you or heard of you and who I don't think had ever really been to see that kind of music, although I could be wrong about that last part, but who was really taken with the band. And uh, it seemed like that was kind of the point of that gig to some degree. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, you know, the work you do to expose audiences to this music, uh, many different kinds of audiences to this music. Well, yeah, you know, for about the last 10 years, a major uh, component of my professional life has been to try to reach out to underserved audiences and take the music in places where normally music doesn't go. Uh, and uh, as Part of that venture, I've been I've uh, been hired by Carnegie Hall's the Wild Music Institute's uh, neighborhood concert series and and also uh, uh, various types of programs that they have community programs and that has been uh, really helpful. They send us out to old folks' homes and hospitals, libraries, and also uh, recently correctional facilities. We've done a series of concerts at Sing Sing and at Rikers Island and things like that. And the idea is to um, not only expose audiences to music and give them uh, an opportunity to hear things that uh, we do when we play in clubs in New York City or in concert halls, but also to explore the possibilities of music as a, uh, a way of, of community building, as a cathartic way of kind of working through things and uh, negotiating and sounding out cultural difference and sounding out uh, common understandings. And when we first started this work, I thought, oh, well, this would be great. I'll just give back to the, you know, the communities and all the oppor wonderful opportunities that, that I have had. And it became really clear. I remember the first year we primarily played at uh, uh, homeless shelters, especially for kids in homeless shelters, that I was getting more out of all of this than anybody. It was, it was really enriching for me and for my own music. It made like I would... It, it felt like we were making a difference in some of the kids' lives, uh, but at the same time, I realized how much they had to offer me in my own education and what was missing, and I realized that it was a very equal relationship. And uh, I've always thought to myself that if I could make a living just playing those kind of venues, I'd do that because, first of all, the audiences tend to be much more appreciative, <laughs> and um, the audiences are much more engaged, and... Uh, it, it's fulfilling because it, it's kind of getting back in touch with the role that music plays in many societies around the world. And I think that in the United States, sometimes we lose touch with that, like that daily use of music for whatever purpose that is, whether it's for dancing and entertainment, for escape, or to accompany work or whatnot, or for accompanying rituals. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very important work. And so the concert that you saw us play at the Museo del Barrio, or the, 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 the basically the, the Museum of Spanish Harlem, was uh, fantastic because we play Latin jazz, and it's located at 105th and 5th Avenue, kind of right on the, in the heart of Spanish Harlem, uh, but on the, on the border of Central Park, so right as it kind of crosses over, and so in sim symbolically it's like two worlds coming together. Um, but at the same time, it's just a few blocks away from where it all began. And in the 1920s and 30s, 110th and 5th Avenue was really the, the center, the nexus for Spanish Harlem and for the performances. A lot of the clubs and music stores were right in that neighborhood. Tito Puente grew up right near there. So did the Palmieres. So did Mach Machito live there. So it was really uh, the heart of it. And so it was like we were bringing some of this music back home after a very long journey.
there's a lot to react to there. Uh, one thread to follow is this idea of the community use of music. Uh, I've been reading this book, uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Jeff Chang's History of the Hip-Hop Generation, which talks a lot about that exact same thing. Uh, you know, these huge Bronx block parties um, and, you know, project parties where people would come together and often, although this is a little mythologized, you know, gang gang beefs would be settled through rhyming or on the dance floor, that kind of thing. And I like that you said, in many ways, you are reintroducing something that is already common and was common in many cultures and remains common in many cultures in other countries, but something that in some ways it feels like we've, we've lost in our kind of modern society that, that coming together, like the, the family sing or the getting together in the community commons and everybody dancing or, you know, the thing at the Legion hall or whatever it might be. It seems like that's just kind of gone away. It's kind of corny now. Yeah. It's weird. It's like everybody's got earbuds in, right? And sometimes you'll see two kids sharing earbuds, right? But it's still just a community of two. Right. But this notion of having everybody together, trying to create a performance space where people feel like they can participate on some level, even if it's clapping along or just moving. Uh, and, and it's it's a conversation, you know. It's like, hey, this is music that we're playing is part of who we all are, and this is what it sounds like, and this is what makes this place a beautiful place. So it's a it's a. I mean, it comes back to like the the heart of what jazz improvisation is all about. You know, we we have inherited this jazz aesthetic from African American culture, and I think Sidney Bechet sums it up the best. When someone asked him what jazz was, he said, "It's a sound of freedom." It's the freedom that the slaves who were newly emancipated felt, and they had to try to make sense of it all. And so they turned to the, uh, the, the things that they had at hand and the ugliness that they had at hand, and they tried to convert that and change that and transform that into beauty. And I, I thought that really captures it well in the sense that, first of all, he makes jazz a verb instead of a noun. It's a way of being. And it also is this very important uh, tradition and legacy that we all share. And it's at kind of the heart of what it is to be American. It's that colonial encounter that we all kind of grew out of. And we're all around us now is what, what is uh, the remnants of that. And, uh, but live performance has really suffered in, in kind of this modern technological world that we live in. And nothing against it. I mean, I, I love the technology, but it, 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 there is also a disconnect. Yeah, that's, that Bechet definition is also great because it um, it removes the idea of categorization or uh, kind of definition by parameter when we talk about the music, right. which I really like too. Yeah, and then you don't have to worry about this genre contestation. Instead of it's it's more of a process as opposed to like a final product. Another thread to follow from what you were saying earlier is uh, the thread just about that neighborhood um, where El Museo is, and uh, you. Uh, just handed me a copy of your book, Sounding Salsa, uh, which I haven't read, so I won't pretend like I have. Um, but you mentioned that the first chapter deals with your own arrival uh, in that area. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that happened to you? And Well, yeah, I mean, the you know, Spanish Harlem used to be the, the heart of Puerto Rican culture here in New York City. It's not so much anymore. It's Most of the musicians don't live there anymore, and uh, it's primarily Mexican now, actually. Um, but it still serves as a center for the music, the Latin music uh, industry here in the sense that it's where a lot of the bands rehearse. And there's a building right next to Museo del Barrio called Boys Harbor. It's the Boys Harbor School, uh, School, Boys and Girls Harbor School for the Arts. And after hours, it really becomes a rehearsal space for all of the Latin bands in New York City. And it's, it's cool because a lot of fans don't know about it. And so, you know, big stars like Ruben Blades when he comes to town, that's where they rehearse. Willie Colon as well. And, um, and, uh, they're kind of left alone. You know, it's just the neighborhood and it's kind of chilled out and you can kind of go and relax and you can get your work done and go on. And so, uh, my first introduction to the New York Latin music scene was in that place. The first rehearsal I went to was at Boys Harbor. It was like the third day I'd moved to New York City. I remember it was a rehearsal with Oscar Hernandez and a singer, a Venezuelan singer named Watusi, and they were re rehearsing in, uh, for a, uh, a performance and a recording. And that was, you know, I got thrown into that, and I realized it was just a very, very special place. It's in the basement, and, and there's these, uh, you know, and, 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 and 
was the summertime and it was really hot, so the windows are open. It's, you know, no air conditioning. And, and uh, But, like, the neighborhood kids from the projects all gather around the windows, these basement windows, and dance right on the, you know, turn the concrete sidewalks into dance floors. And, I, I mean, I remember just seeing that and going, wow, man, you know, you, you don't get this anywhere else in the world. I've never experienced this, especially in the United States. You just don't see this. There was I knew there was something very special going on. And so I launch, uh, my book is a, the study of salsa in the 1990s from a musician's perspective. And I deal with some pretty difficult social uh, uh, issues, including the, kind of the role of the drug industry and violence in that scene, uh, but also the beauty of the music. And so it, it my book starts exactly where I started on that journey of getting to know the music. seem to have arrived at a place and I'm I mean I'm just looking from the outside so you, you can correct me but you seem to have arrived at a place of acceptance and respect um, in in this this particular musical world and I don't know I have to believe that that's probably hard won right I mean I imagine there's a lot of it's a must be a proving ground to get to the point where you're where you're at now First of all, the, the the Latin music scene in New York City is in New York, and like every music scene in New York, it's it's the most competitive place that we have probably uh, in the music industry, maybe in the entire world, but especially for Latin music. Of course, there's you know there's a lot of very important other locations where there's a lot of music, but probably per capita, there's more musicians living here and really great musicians, and so um, it's the type of thing that you're only as good as your last gig. And that's no matter what scene you're in, in the jazz world, in the classical music world. And so uh, there's a certain type of personality and musicians that thrive here and others that don't. Uh, it tends to be those that thrive off com more competitive environments sure. uh, and uh, that are those that are willing to continually grow over time. It's like you can't stop practicing here. You might as well move someplace else if you're not going to continue to grow because your gigs will stop, opportunities will stop happening because there's just too many people that can replace you. I mean, in my in my iPhone right now, I have at least a number of 250 trombone players that I could call that could do as good or better of a job at any gig that I do. And I know that, and it's really humbling. And I thrive off that environment. I remember when I first moved to town, I was living on 8th Avenue and 55th, and my practice room looked over the street. And at that time, Slide Hampton was living three doors down, and uh, he would walk by every day, like going to get his coffee. And then uh, Benny Powell from the Count Basie Orchestra lived right around the corner. And then all of the Broadway cats would walk by my house to go to their gigs. So, I, you know, I was seeing Dave Bargeron, Jim Pugh. I mean, I was just seeing all it and Tom Malone for that. They, the, all the Letterman guys would walk right by my house. And I mean, I remember I'd practice for an hour, and then all of a sudden I'd see Slide Hampton walk by and I'd go, damn. I got to practice for another hour. I practice and I say, "Okay, I'm getting tired." And then Benny would walk by, and Tom. I mean, I would just practice all day long. It was it was inspiring. To make to kind of like doubly compound matters, though, when you're playing the music from from a culture that you're an outsider from. I mean, I, I grew up on a farm in Ohio, right? With uh, there were no Puerto Ricans around for miles, and um, I had very little opportunity to be exposed to Latino culture. So when I 
started to get involved in it when I was in school in Boston, you know, the learning curve was steep. By the time I had gotten to New York, though, I had already transcribed all of Barry Rogers' solos from Eddie Palmieri record. I knew all of those monias and backgrounds, and I could play in that style, so I was well prepared. But because it's in New York, and because I was from an outsider, you know, at first they were like, like, who is this guy? Like, he's, a folk, he's from Ohio. Well, why is it that he knows how to play just like Barry, Barry Rogers? And, and uh, Barry Rogers was, you know, one of the most, the most important trombone players in the Latin music scene, but he was a Jew from Brooklyn, right? So he had kind of set the precedent for outsiders coming in and innovating within salsa, which helped. He really forged the path. Um, but showing respect, sh treating Latin music as seriously as I treated my jazz studies, um, really working as hard and diligently that way and not treating it just like a gig, but as a music that I love, which I do, uh, musicians can hear that integrity and that honesty. And I must say that, yeah, it was hard one, but not any harder than any of the other scenes that I've been in. Sure. And um, actually, I found that the Puerto Rican and New Yorican culture in New York was extremely welcoming. And I, it's something that I'm just I'm so indebted to. I've written several songs as tributes to, to how, the warmth that I was met. Uh, with over and over again. Now, I'm not going to say that it was an easy ride. There were, I'm sure there was, you know, this, this country is filled with racism and it exists in pockets in all sorts of different areas and milieus. And I would, I would, uh, would be not being honest if I said I didn't face some of that myself. Um, but I mean, that's just ignorance, you know, and you, we just have to work together to transcend those ignorant moments. Uh, but I, 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 I'm very thankful. I've gotten to play with every single major salsa star in the last 25 years. I got to be on Tito Puente's bandstand and Eddie Palmieri's bandstand. I mean, I couldn't ask for any more. I feel, I feel completely satisfied in terms of those accomplishments. When you were talking to like your family and friends back in Ohio, the people that you came up with, and you were like, so I'm going to play with Eddie Palmieri or whatever. Did, did people that you knew from back in your own day have any idea how important it was what you were? Doing. Oh man, you know those kind. Of, I, I, I uh, Ohio was a great place to grow up. It's uh, it was a very difficult place to have conversations about what I was doing, when I was doing it. Until, I mean, because you know, basically our exposure was I love Lucy shows, right? Right, right. So and Xavier Cugat, the orchestra. So it's just kind of Hollywood versions of Latin music and watered down. And uh, they didn't know who Eddie Palmieri was. They didn't know who Tito was, or at least some of them did. But it wasn't until Ricky Martin kind of crossed over that uh, no matter what you think of Ricky Martin, the fact of the matter was he was the first Puerto Rican who was showing up on life-size posters in many, many different kids' bedrooms across the Midwest. And I knew that happened like in the mid-90s or so. Right. Uh, and I remember going home and visiting an, a friend of mine from high school and seeing one of his little sisters with that, you know, that poster in her bedroom. And I was just shocked. I was like, okay, there's been a paradigm sh shift. And we're seeing that shift now. Like, who are our pop stars today? It's uh, Mark Anthony, Ricky Martin, Shakira, uh, Christina Aguilera, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, these are Latinos, right? It's it's a real shift in the sense that, that la Latino culture has become centered in some ways as American culture. And so... Now, I mean, I rarely go back, but I played in Mark Anthony's first band, you know, and I, you know, now when I start talking about it, it's like, oh, you played with Mark Anthony. Now they know who that is. And so it was frustrating when I was younger, but now it's really satisfying that, yeah. that, that, that this it's come kind of full circle. And I was on the vanguard, you know, now these people are starting to learn who these people are. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, you talk about forming Sayotos, and particularly from the lens of deciding to form, uh, deciding to form your own group, combining these two traditions, and and what that might have been like stepping out as a band leader and saying, okay, now I have my own vision for what I'm going to do with this music. Well, it's funny. I, I was, uh, I had always been a band leader, like right from the beginning. Even when I was in high school, I shared band leader skills with uh, this Led Zeppelin cover band. Unfortunately, it was very difficult to figure out how to play trombone and sound like <laughs> Jimmy Page. But I mean, I, I was really onto something. I should have stuck with it. Uh, but uh, I, I started to turn to jazz. And uh, uh, when I was in college, I had my own quintet. We played a lot uh, when I was I was studying in Madison and Wisconsin, and even in Boston, I had some of my own groups. But when I came to New York, I just didn't really know that many people. So I was working as a freelancer. And after the, the first year of being here, I was like, you know, something's missing in my musical life. I I always knew that it was, it was always important to keep working on your own projects. You know, in New York, you can kind of get sidetracked. There's so many bands you could play with. I mean, I remember at one time, I think I counted, I was a regular member of 20 different bands with all different styles, you know, <laughs> classical, pop, hip hop, uh, jazz and Latin, salsa and stuff. And I, I thought, but, you know, where's my comp- composing? I didn't feel like I had my own creative outlet that was just purely mine. So I thought, you know, why not try to combine some of my background in this new venture? And so I decided to try a Latin jazz project. I had never led a Latin jazz group before, and I had lots of friends who were playing in uh, Tito Nieves' band with me at the time that, like me, had jazz backgrounds or they were interested in jazz, but they were really primarily playing salsa for a living and freelancing around like I was. So I got a gig at this French restaurant. I remember for Bastille Day. (laughs) Uh, celebration. I, my girlfriend at the time was a waitress there, so she hooked me up, and um, I hired and I what I the bands and I hired the cats that I was playing this also with to join me, and so at that time it was Ray Vega on trumpet and uh, Chembo Corniel on congas. Both of them were playing with Tito and a couple other musicians uh, that were very busy in the scene that I've been playing with off and on, and that's how it got launched. And we would you know we only played a couple times. Um, uh, throughout that first year, but um, and what was the book at that time? Yeah, uh, it was fans, you or? know, it's funny. It was a combination of some of my music and Latin jazz standards and some Brazilian standards. You know, I'd been playing Brazilian music off and on over the years, and so it was just uh, tunes to, to kind of party by. You know, sure. and I started writing more and more. And but what really changed was after about a year or so of doing that. There was a club in uh, the village called Mondo Perso. It doesn't exist anymore. And there was once a week there was a, a Latin jazz jam session there that I would go, all of us would go and hang out. And the New Yorican Poets Cafe, which was on the East Village, um, had they had they were having Thursday nights. They were having like charanga. I think uh, Johnny Almendra's band was there. And Johnny, they quit suddenly, and they needed a band. And I was playing with a rock band. The same day they quit, I was playing with a rock band in uh, uh, at the New York Poets Cafe. I remember it was with a group called Da Da Da, uh, run by um, Kitty Brazelton. And the woman that was there said, "Hey, someone told me that you got you have a, a Latin jazz group, and I'm desperate. I need a band to play here on Thursday night. Can you do it?" And I was like, yeah, "Okay." And it was you know it's like a door gig and stuff. I said, "Well, final, we'll do it." And we did it. And the people at the New York, like three people showed up. We were playing for tables and chairs. Right. Three people showed up. But the New Yorkans said, man, we really like, you know, the band. Would you consider playing here on a weekly basis? And I was like, well, reluctantly, I said, okay. I said, but I don't, you know, you're losing money. I don't want to play here when nobody comes. He go, no, no, you know, spread the word. We know that it takes time to, sp- to start things up. And so we did. And they just never stopped. They never asked me not to come. <laughs> and we played there for almost 11 years straight, every Thursday. And it really got built up to the point where there was it was packed on Thursday nights. And I turned it into a jam session as well because the Mondo Perso uh, bar closed down. So there were no places for Latin jazz musicians to, to uh, jam. And so we were the only Latin jazz jam session in town. And it was great because I would get to hear all the new cats that would come to town because they'd come to be heard and also to network. Uh, and 
because I had that regular gig, I had to start writing music. And our book grew from maybe like 12 or 15 charts to 225 charts over that time, mostly written by me. And um, it wasn't until after September 11th that the Lower East Side, the businesses started to really collapse. It was right. a, They really took a hit. They still haven't fully recovered in that area. Um, and um, shortly thereafter, uh, uh, we decided to stop playing there weekly. And um, then we moved uptown to smoke. And we were there for 10 years, and we just finished that gig uh, three months ago. So we had the longest-running weekly Latin jazz gig. It was for 21 years straight, probably in the history of New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and now, the, I mean, the repertoire of the band, it's over 500 tunes. And, you know, it was, it's quite a remark. It was just by accident it happened. Yeah. And I would have never in my dreams thought of that. It just weekly gigs in New York are unheard of. That, and they're, they're unheard of and that last that long are really unheard of. It seems like that must have been really luxurious for you as a writer to be able to just every week, week in and week out, hear the music played that you were that you were writing. Spectacular. It was really spectacular. Sayotos has not rehearsed in thirteen years. Because <laughs> we didn't have to. We played every week together. Right. And if I hadn't and you know, we were doing more than just that weekly gig. We were doing tours, we were playing in different places. And if I had new stuff, I would bring in a sketch. We would play the sketch and like the the arrangement would kind of grow over time and I remember it was funny we would uh, I just played a I just had a residency at Michigan State and at Northern Illinois University and and um, playing Sayotos came with me and we played with the students out there did some educational stuff and did our own concerts and I remember the instructor at, uh, at Northern Illinois University said hey you know I really love that arrangement that you guys have of you and the night of the music could you bring it and I'm like you know we don't have any arrangements those are all improvised on the spot and that's, you know, close to what it must have been like to be a jazz musician in the 1940s and 50s in New York City, where everybody was playing so much that organically music was just transforming on stage in front of audiences. And that's what we have in Sayotos. And I, there's very few Latin jazz groups out today that are actually groups that actually play all the time together. Yeah. And uh, it's a real luxury. Uh, and uh, again, I was really blessed to have that experience. so interesting because um, it seems like you you have found this place in between what I think is fair to say the precision of salsa um, and the and the freedom of jazz which seems like kind of a, an interesting place to navigate as a musician yeah I, I don't know I, I can only imagine it must be interesting as a writer as well well you know salsa of the 1970s was pretty loose yeah, fair and enough. It was very yeah. improvisational, and uh, you know, you listen to those Willie Colon and Eddie Palmieri records from that time, man, and it's just 
it's raw and you know full of life and soul. Um, The music of the 1990s and into the 2000s, it's a much more commercialized form of the original. And so it is very strict. And in terms of like creativity, when you play a salsa gig now, you might have 8, 16, 32 bars of of soloing a night, and that's it. And the rest of it, you're just playing what's on the record, just like a pop gig. And I think that was another kind of push for a lot of us to try to find a more creative arena so we could we love the salsa we love the grooves and love to play it but we also love the ability to have a, a little bit more creative input into what was going on and of course jazz gives you that so the combination of the two where you have these kind of strict rhythmic forms that you must attend to but then Sayotos over time has kind of gotten i mean i've spent a lot of time playing free jazz and avant-garde jazz over the years and I've been pushing Sayotos further and further into that arena to really try to combine 20th century contemporary classical forms. I mean, some of the pieces that I write are 12-tone poems uh, and also using 12-tone rows of Schoenberg and Weber to try to incorporate that into that harmonic language. Sometimes I have no chord changes whatsoever, so it's like this free Ornette Coleman-like free improvisational space, but on Below that is this, these kind of, these rhythms that are informed by salsa that are very strict. And so that's the, the constraints in our music is the rhythmic framework, but then the melodic and harmonic are completely loose. In salsa, the melodic and harmonic are also very strict as well. So that's, that's where the kind of freedom and opening up of the music happens. Does it make it challenging at all to find people to hold down the rhythmic element with all this going on on top of them? It's not hard to find people that can hold the rhythm. Uh, element down. It's hard to find people that can hold the rhythmic element down with and the jazz aesthetic to their playing so that they can do it, but then they can also interact with the free playing that's going on at the same time. Right. It's also very difficult to find jazz players who can improvise within that rhythmic structure, but as free as they would if it was a jazz uh, jazz groove. So you, it, it the, the field of musicians that I have that work with me is actually not as broad as you might think. Uh, now, of course, there's so many musicians here. I have about 10 different instrumentalists I can use on each chair, but that's a relatively small arena compared to the larger Like the 250 trombonists exactly. that you mentioned earlier, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Can you talk uh, about um, what you do here at Columbia? Well, it, you know, for the first 15 years or so, almost 20 years that I was in New York City, I was really primarily a freelancer and I uh, did a lot of touring. I got to play with a lot of pop bands, famous bands. I played with Justin Timberlake and Gloria Estefan and people like that. And um, But as I got a little older and wanted to start a family, I got a little tired of that touring and wanted to explore the possibilities of maybe limiting some of that kind of work where I had to spend so much time out of town. And instead travel when I wanted to travel doing my own music. And um, when I first came to New York, I didn't know anybody at all. I had one phone number of a Venezuelan friend of a friend. That's how I got that first gig with that Venezuelan singer. Um, And so I applied to graduate school on a whim because I heard that they give you a stipend and they give you a cheap place to live, you know. And I always liked school. I liked learning and things. So I thought, you know, this might be a good opportunity. And I got into Columbia's at the musicology program uh, to work on my PhD. And I always thought, well, I would just do it for a little while until I broke into the music scene because I knew I wanted to become a, a studio musician here. But what happened is, is I, when I got to New York, it was a, the late 80s and it was a really vibrant time for freelancing. And within a matter of two months, I was working enough to make a living, and I didn't need the graduate school anymore. Um, but I also was digging what I was learning and thought to myself, you know, I was studying ethnomusicology, which is like the study of world music, right? It's the anthropology of sound and anthropology of music. So I was studying world cultures and the role that music plays in them, and it was fascinating. And I thought, well, you know, there must be some ethnomusicology written about Latin music when I'm doing at night. And I went to the library, and there was one book in English. 
and it was Charlie Girard's book on salsa, and it was more, it, it was a good study, but it wasn't really in-depth. It was about, about the different instrumental roles and uh, a general history, but there was nothing there that was like where people really spent time talking to musicians, and I was like, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here where I could actually do my gigs, but also use those gigs as my object of research and maybe write something and really tell people about the specialness of this scene. So I ended up sticking it out. I, I, I mean, I was, I would barely make any of my classes because I was traveling so much. And I, <laughs> I wrote my dissertation on planes, basically, and on buses and between sets. Um, but, you know, I had access. I remember it was, I was right towards the end of my writing my dissertation. And I, we had this tour with Celia Cruz, Tito Puente, Jose Alberto, uh, La India, uh, maybe Mark Anthony and somebody else down to Argentina. And we got to the airport, and they screwed up my ticket, and they gave me a first-class ticket by accident, right? And all the rest of the, the band, best kind of mistake. Right? Yeah, the, the <laughs> band was all in the you know uh, in the back of the bus, so to speak. And I sit down, and on my one side is Tito Puente, and my other side is Celia Cruz, and we got a nine and a half hour flight. <laughs> and both of them are extremely gracious uh, and generous people. And they both knew that I was doing, I was writing about the scene. And I mean, I had an extraordinary time interviewing them. And I mean, just nobody has them for that long. And they were telling me st uh, most amazing stories, some of which are in my book. And I remember halfway through the, the trip, Tito looked at me and goes, oh, my God, I forgot the music. And he says, how many tunes do I have to play? And I said, well, you know, each one of you is doing two songs for this concert. And he goes, what songs did you guys rehearse? And so I told him, I think Ron Kakan and maybe Oye Komova. He goes, do you got any music paper? And I was like, well, yeah. And I gave him music paper. I said, do you have a pencil? And I said, no, I got a pen. I remember I had like a big blue point uh, <laughs> a pen on me, and I gave it to him. And so he took it, and he, in front of my eyes, without a piano player, piano or anything, wrote out, he said, how many horns are there? And I said, well, there's six on this tour. He orchestrated those arrangements for six horns. I kept those parts. I still have them in his, I hope so. his, his, uh, in his hand. And I just thought to myself, what percussionist, what drummer today could do this? He's coming from a generation of musicians where musicians were really musicians. And here's, he's the band leader. He's the, the personality out front. He's not just someone that has someone else doing all the work for him. He is the musician that's running this band. And it was so impressive. And I was like, that, what I was able to witness at that moment, no academic that's been writing on Latin music has been able to witness. And I need to document this because this is something that needs to be told to the public uh, just as a greater appreciation. And so I stuck it out. Luckily, I finished my PhD in 1999 and just kept continued to tour. Um, but then when I wanted to slow down and not travel so much, I applied back to Columbia and I got the gig. And I so I teach ethnomusicology here and I also uh, run, I started the undergraduate jazz performance program because they never had one. And um, got some help from the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation, and so we call it the Louis Armstrong Jazz Performance Program. Are there other secret doctors on uh, on your bandstand sometimes that we wouldn't know about? The secret doctors? Yes, other people with PhDs that we uh, like. Well, I, I heard one introduce the other, Dana Hall, the drummer, a great drummer, has a PhD, and uh, I saw him play the the other evening with. Uh, Terrell Stafford and Daryl Stafford said, you know, introduced him as the doctor. The doctor I thought yeah. there's got to be a bunch of these guys out there. Who have there's not a bunch. PhDs. There's a few of us. Um, in Sayotos, uh, I, I haven't hired another doctor, although I must say that when I was playing with Ray Barreto's band, there were three of us working on our doctorate at the time. <laughs> it was Jairo Moreno on bass, Hector Colon on trumpet, and myself. And we always joke, this is the most highly educated salsa band in the entire world. <laughs> Way too over, uh, overly educated. That's great.
Will you um, will you talk about Sayota's most recent record? Yeah. We, you know, Sciotus is kind of known for its raucous side. We've always been, because we were a band that was playing in public, especially playing in these clubs where people were like dancing and going crazy, especially the New York and Poets Cafe. It's, it's like we have embraced that aesthetic of the New York City streets. So it's raucous, it's loud, it's fun, it's vibrant music that we do even if we're playing some kind of socially challenging types of uh, dealing with socially challenging topics, uh, it's still the aesthetic is like hot, you know, all, you know, no, no holes barred. It's just really play um, to the back wall of the club. But at the same time, I mean, I love soft boleros. Right. <laughs> you know, I love beautiful love songs. And um, so we decided to take a little bit of a turn. Uh, I also had, you know, uh, two kids o- over the last seven years and I'd written lullabies for them. And I just thought, you know, I want to get in touch with a softer, gentler side of, uh, of Sayotos. And so we put out our, uh, our latest record, which is Fields of Moons on Jazz Heads Records, which is just lullabies, love songs and boleros. And some jazz standards that are done in a more of a softer way to get in touch with that that side of us, and it was really a wonderful project uh, to do. We always played boleros when we played live. Uh, we usually end in a very raucous way, but right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we're just trying to get something that would be a toned in a, in, a, in a different way. And it's it's funny. Um, the Grammys have been on my mind lately because uh, we just had this huge protest about the Latin jazz quarter category being canceled. And when for this for this last uh, Grammy round, when we submitted Fields of Moons, uh, the Grammys, the genre experts of the Grammys, barred us from the Latin jazz category. And it's a Latin jazz record. I mean, there's Montunos and things like that, and it's all boleros, uh, and all the rhythmic f- format is is is, lat- uh, is Latin rhythms. But they said, no, this is a jazz record. And I. And I re- realized, like, the from the outside, some people have this idea of what Latin jazz should be, and it's got to be this kind of loud and raucous thing. And it was remarkable because, you know, Charlie Hayden put out the record that did win the Latin Grammy, which is all boleros and 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 and, and ballads, and uh, we got we got barred. And when I called when we called them to complain, they were like, "No, nothing can be done." Our genre experts said that, and I'm like, going, you know. I've been playing Latin jazz now for 21 years, played with all of the major Latin jazz groups in New York City, and I'm writing a book right now for Oxford University Press on Latin jazz, and specifically about the genre contestation of Latin jazz. Don't you tell me that this is not Latin jazz. Who the hell are your experts? Well, obviously, their experts now have said that, well, Latin jazz is not a category that has enough submissions. That's what they said. There's not enough submissions. Well, how many of the submissions of Latin jazz were actually barred? Right, get turned back. Exactly. So they can actually manipulate the numbers, and now they've they've completely uh, canceled that category. But that has nothing to do with Fields of Moons. But <laughs> other than it, we got barred from the Latin jazz category. Uh, but, but one thing you said in there, though, that I think is important, that idea that people have uh, you know, a preconception about what Latin jazz should be. And you talked about uh, when you were first studying at Columbia, and there was you know one book— uh, that you could find in the library. I mean, it, it seems like, uh, to some degree, people can be forgiven for their preconception because there's so little education being done about what the music is. That's right. And uh, absolutely be forgiven, unless you're Neris and you're the National right, you're the Grammys. Academy of Arts and right, Sciences and the Grammys, exactly, you yeah. should know better. Shame on you. Exactly. Yeah. But yes, that's right. And and that's another great thing about being associated with an educational institution and also playing these concerts to these communities because you know, my personal mandate is to educate and to perpetuate these very important musical forms. And how do you do that? It's through the young people. And that's our future, you know. And and so you need to get to them when they're young and say, hey, this is, you know, this is what this music is about. Listen, listen hard. Yeah. It's worth it. You might learn something. Uh, I want to end uh, talking about the the thing that probably first, besides the music, drew me to you um, as a as an artist, um, which is that you've never been afraid of uh, speaking your mind about political and social issues where when your music uh, where your music is concerned. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you've decided to make those decisions? Well, you know, I I never I always kind of embraced what Duke Ellington said, whereas that uh, music and politics don't mix and to keep them separate. 
and you know, it, on, on the surface, I bought it until you start really listening to Duke Ellington. In the 1930s, he was writing the black and tan fantasy. I mean, it right. was all political. He was just doing it in a very nuanced and subtle way. And of course, that was indicative of the, of the times in which he was dealing with these right. very deep political issues. I mean, you can't host the sacred concerts and that music is derived from very specific source material. Oh, it's explicitly absolutely. political. Yeah. That's, that's right. And, um, but I kind of embraced the more surfacey notion of that and said, okay, yeah, music is just for celebration. You know, it should, should, can't really be. I mean, I was very, never really into protest songs. Well, I guess I was into Bob Marley to some extent. But, you know, I didn't really necessarily want to do it myself. And plus, I play instrumental music. I don't have text. I don't have lyrics. And I remember it was September, what, it must have been September 16th, right after 9-11, and we had a gig at Smoke. So it was the Sunday after the attacks. And uh, I called up Smoke and said, are we going to play? And they said, yeah, you know, no one's going to show up, but we got to play. And I was like, oh, man, that's like everybody was, we were all, my whole band was here in the city when that happened, you know, and we were all touched in some way either by had friends missing where we knew somebody that, you know, that knew somebody and had a family member. We had all played at Windows of the World on the top of the uh, World Trade Center uh, frequently. They used to have a salsa club up there. And I just was like, oh, man, I don't, the last thing I want to do is play. We all felt that way. But we ended up going, and smoke was packed. It was absolutely packed. You could not get in at the door. And it was a combination of tourists who were stuck in the city because you couldn't fly then, right. and also neighborhood people. And it was like people needed to be together and I remember we started to play and the vibe was so intense and so celebratory celebratory of life that it was the best gig I ever played in my entire life and it was this combination of really being realizing ah I now know what my role in society is I had to play there was no option. I was able to bring, if just for a few hours, some relief, catharsis, and togetherness. Mm. And it was from that moment on that everything I recorded afterwards had some kind of political message because I knew the music is political, even if it's just a celebration. Just the act of getting people to get together and dance, that's a political act. Yeah, and then uh, somebody said, and I'm going to poorly paraphrase, you know, that in the face of so much oppression and tragedy and pain that just making beauty, making art is in itself an act of protest. Absolutely. Which I totally agree with. My guest is Chris Washburn and uh, he and the Sayotos band are always around and you should go see them. You should buy all their records and you should also pick up a copy of Sounding Salsa, performing Latin music in New York City, which is uh, Chris's book. And it sounds like another book is forthcoming as well. It, it is. Yeah, it'll be out next year on Very Oxford cool. University Press. That's great. Well, man, it's, uh, I'm a big fan of you and your music, and I thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Chris Washburn and the Sayotos Band from their album Fields of Moons. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you can also find the recent episodes in iTunes. You can subscribe using an RSS reader, and all of those links are available for you at thejazzsession.com. 
If you are a new listener to the show, I'll just mention that if you go to thejazzsession.com, along the left-hand side of the page, you will see an alphabetical list, last name first, of everyone who's ever been on the show. And you can very easily uh, just run down the list, click on any one, and the episode is there for you to listen to for free anytime you want it. You can also download the MP3. It's also listed right there. And uh, take it with you when you go someplace. And you can pass them around if you want. Uh, certainly encourage that. It's under a, a Creative Commons license, and the information about that license is at the bottom of the page on the jazzsession.com. Also, if you're interested in delving into a particular instrument, you can, at the very bottom of the left-hand side of the jazzsession.com, you can see a drop-down menu called Categories, and that is just broken down by instrument. So if you want to hear every trombone player has ever been on the show, like uh, Chris today, or, you know, whatever it is, every trumpet player, every saxophone player, uh, every accordion player, which won't take long, there's only been one, but there's about to be two. Uh, in any case, you can just sort by instrument, and it'll bring up all of the posts for that instrument. There's a few other categories of composers, so people who lead bands but do not play in them, like Darcy James Argue, Maria Schneider, those kind of people. Um, there's, uh, I think, a category for New Orleans, uh, for all the musicians from New Orleans that I've interviewed. There are categories for the Rochester International Jazz Festival and the Tanglewood Jazz Fest, two festivals that I've covered multiple years. So just check out that category listing, and I think you'll find some things in there that you like. And if you do, then I urge you to become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now, stop all this listening stuff and get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, okay? And then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.